FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. So happy to have all of you with us for another edition of our show uh, today. Uh, Lots to talk about. Let's get right to the panel, introduce them, and start looking at the topics uh, in politics for our show. Patricia Murphy is with me as she is on Friday. She is the Atlanta General Constitution's uh, political columnist. She writes the Political Insider column that appears on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper, oversees the jolt, which is the daily summary of interesting and often very important political news. And she's out there in the field reporting on politics as well. Hi, Patricia. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Bill. Um, Thank you for being here. Andre Gillespie is back with us today, professor of political science and the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University. Um, Andre, you know, we talk about, I I introduce you in terms of the Institute, but never give you much opportunity to talk about it. You just had a program you were telling us before the show. What did you just do a program on and how does it represent the work that you're doing at the Institute? So we have an evening public dialogue series that we run a couple of programs in a a few times a year. Um, And then we also have a weekly colloquium where we bring in a speaker who is talking about usually a new book that they've published on a topic related to race and difference. So that's every Monday. Uh, You can sign up for uh, those. We're on Zoom now because of the pandemic at jwji.emory.edu. But last night, our public dialogue was about Black and Asian American solidarity. And so we had a great panel um, of uh, folks uh, who study... uh, Uh, the relationship between Asia and blackness, uh, study sort of Asian Americans' involvement in the long civil rights movement in the 20th century. So we had a political scientist, we had a few historians on there, we had somebody from Asian Americans Advancing Justice Atlanta. It was a really, really good discussion. And the good thing about our talks is that if you can't make them in person, you can uh, watch them because we usually end up posting them to Emory's uh, YouTube channel so you can find us there. Well, I'm glad. Thank you for taking a, a minute or two to tell us about them because you really are doing interesting work there. Um, Maybe, uh, team, we can put up a link to uh, the website so that people can check out the James Weldon Johnson Institute and the programs that Andre is running there. Um, Renee Alegria is with us. He, of course, is the CEO, the boss at Mundo Hispanico Digital. How are you today, Renee? I'm doing great, Bill. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, How can you uh, complain about anything with this Gorgeous sunny weather out today, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's hope we're putting the cold weather behind us. Although I think it's a little premature to go that direction yet. <laughs> um, so let's get started. Uh, Patricia, we have talked on this show uh, for weeks now about the the numerous bills that Republican legislators are introducing to, in some ways, oversee, uh, uh, restrict the kind of uh, courses that can be taught in schools. The the newest one is from a uh, representative, David Knight. We'll talk about what he wants to do in a moment. But if, if I can, I'd like to frame this in the context of a column that you put up on Wednesday, which took a look at the effort to get a Clarence Thomas statue on the uh, grounds of the state capitol at, but put it in the larger context of how that and the, the uh, debate over that relates to this larger debate over what is being taught in school. So tell us first about this Clarence Thomas debate, and then let's relate it to this new piece of legislation and the others that are out there. So the state Senate this week debated a measure to put a statue of Clarence Thomas on Capitol grounds. And um, Clarence Thomas, of course, is from Pinpoint, Georgia, a tiny little town that was founded by freed slaves um, outside of Savannah, uh, rose to go to Yale Law School. And of course, a member of the um, United States Supreme Court. So just a very distinguished, um, really remarkable life story. But the debate in the Senate was really about um, not whether he has an incredible life story, but whether he deserves to be 
be honored by the Georgia State Senate. And that was a topic that um, really became very, very divisive, very personal. Um, Senator Ben Watson's from Savannah knows the Thomas family and introduced that bill and said he is this is a wonderful family. Um, Clarence Thomas has done incredible work. Everyone should know him and live by his example um, by coming to the state capitol. Uh, very quickly, black lawmakers came to the well and said, absolutely not. Um, some black, law black lawmakers said, listen, let's just wait to see the full body of Clarence Thomas's work. Um, but Senator Nikki Merritt said, listen, black Americans, black Georgians consider Clarence Thomas a traitor and he has betrayed us. Uh, if you're trying to honor a black man, this is the wrong man uh, to to pick out to do it. Um, and she said that his work, his work on the Supreme Court has been bad for black Americans and black Georgians and really set them back in a way that um, him being on the Supreme Court has been worse and not better for them. And so it just exploded into a very, very personal debate. Um, and it really showed how emotional a single issue about a present day living um, public figure can be even among adults. And so then later in that afternoon, um, a lot of those same senators were at a hearing about a bill from Senator Bo Hatchett. And that really takes up this question of critical race theory. Um, the bill does not mention critical race theory, but it really says that uh, schools in Georgia from kindergarten through uh, graduate level universities um, cannot teach divisive concepts, um, yeah. that that is something that should be forbidden. Yeah, I think what was a fascinating uh, point that you made was that uh, this is not just a debate about history and where Georgia has been in the past in terms of race, uh, but you, the Clarence Thomas debate brings it up. We still fight that fight today. Andre, you know, it's interesting. Let's talk about Clarence Thomas for a minute. Um, I actually went to Pinpoint, Georgia, when Thomas was nominated to do stories with the community down there about his life, to talk to people who knew him, and then got on a bus that people from Pinpoint uh, hired to drive them to Washington uh, for the confirmation hearing. So there was enormous excitement in his hometown about his uh, elevation to the court, or his potential at that point elevation to the court. And so, on one hand, there's no question that his story is, um, it, it's, is really um, a, a very special one, uh, coming from poverty, going to Yale Law, ending up on the United States Supreme Court, and yet, as Patricia says, there's so much dissension about the way in which he's um, made decisions on the court that have not seemed to reflect uh, the very things that helped him get ahead as an African-American man. You know, this one is a really tough call because, uh, you know, the historical fact is is that Clarence Thomas is a very significant person who happens to be from the state of Georgia. So it is not surprising that there are lawmakers who want to honor him with a statue. Um, I think the issue is how this gets tied up in terms of symbolic representation. So as there have been debates about taking down statues of uh, segregationist people who were tied directly to secession in the Civil War, Right. This idea of putting up a a, a, um, a statue of a black man is is something that I, I think some you know Republicans would see as sort of playing into this idea of descriptive representation. Um, but the problem is, is that he's viewed very controversially. And I think we have to look at the totality of the record. So, yes, there were African-Americans who were very supportive of Clarence Thomas's nomination, um, even after the Anita Hill sexual harassment allegations kind of came to the forefront um, because they were putting race first. And when uh, Thurgood Marshall retired from the Supreme Court, one of the big questions was, was would be replaced by another African-American because there was this fear that particularly a Republican president might not care about making sure that there was black representation on the court. And I think we do have to talk about some of the complicated ways and Thomas's colorblind philosophy that most African-Americans don't subscribe to, which is what I think some of the uh, uh, Democratic legislators and black legislators, um, you know, are taking issue with. Um, on the other hand, I think we have to sort of decide sort of, you know, in terms of who we honor, like what is this? Is it an acknowledgement or is this praise in some period, uh, name, share, form? I'm going to go back and use a Yale example. Uh, Clarence Thomas would have gone to school. I certainly was there when one of the residential colleges was named for John C. Calhoun. Um, and that only changed recently. 
Um, and But Calhoun was actually one of the first colleges to change because of the problematic naming, um, because of the fact that they decided that overall, his only sort of historical contribution in the grand scheme of things was the idea of nullification and secession. And so mm -hmm. it was so clearly tied to dehumanizing Black people that they couldn't find anything else that's redeeming about Calhoun in order to preserve the name. So as an undergraduate graduate of the UVA, right, Thomas Jefferson has the slavery thing, but there's also the Declaration of Independence yeah. and being the third president of the United States. And so I think we're going to have to ask similar types of questions about Clarence Thomas as well. Yeah. Um, so, Renee, you know, it, 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 all of that said, again, one of the points that Patricia was making is um, we the, the racial tension, uh, dissension, uh, troubles understanding how we deal with race in this state. Uh, it's not just a matter of looking at the curriculum that's being taught about the history of Georgia. It's bringing it up to the very uh, present. And in some ways, um, that is a really um, even more significant point uh, to make. We're living with this every day. Yeah, it's it's such an amazing time that we're living in. Um, changes everywhere, transformation everywhere, uh, awakening from students, curriculum, etc. Uh, folks just aren't going to take it anymore, and they want to know the truth. And other folks just don't really want to offer the truth. And, you know, with what's happening in the education system, with uh, all of this crazy book banning movement movements and this anti-CRT bills, I mean, it, it, it's almost like uh, you see, some, you know, someone standing up for themselves in an abusive relationship and having that abuser come back with these bills saying, no, you can't, you can't read that. And, and we don't want you to know the truth. Um, it's alarming, but I, I do think that the zeitgeist is is pointing to the to our recognizing our our fraught history. I uh, I, I think about the the movie Watch Watchmen, for example. Um, it was the first time that I think uh, I could be wrong here, but it was the first time that the Tulsa race massacre was actually discussed in popular culture in a film and. And that connected. And, you know, we saw last year the just folks talking about the Tulsa race massacre. No one is taught that in schools. And, you know, that that's not right. Parents might be uncomfortable, but but kids certainly they know better. They're a lot savvier than people realize. And and they're connecting and learning in different ways uh, because they know that that is the pathway to their truth. Um, so it's a different society that I think that we're living in. And, and you know, you, you see these kids starting banned book clubs of their own, you know, that focus on authors uh, of color or LGBTQ authors. And, and it, 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 you're definitely going to see um, this rising of, a, of another generation that's, that's just not going to take what's, what's happening. And I think these bills um, are a disconnection from what is real out there. I can't help but think too about um, Abbott Elementary, and and that I mean I, I don't know if you've seen it, but it is so well done, yeah. and it speaks to the earnestness of yeah. teachers and what they go through, and and teaching as an honorable profession, and you know with with when you watch that, and it's it's so wildly popular, it's such a hit. It is teaching more to our students yeah. about what education is than the education system and those who want to keep what was old and not relevant. So I, I think it's interesting, Renee. Um, you know, it remains to be, seen, be, to be seen whether the backlash that you anticipate, how it might take shape. But these measures are moving forward in the General Assembly. And, and Patricia, I want to there are at least four measures that have been introduced that will have some impact that would impact curriculum, what can and cannot be taught. And then um, we've got a new bill from uh, David Knight, a Republican from Demarest, Georgia. And his, well, I'm sorry, he doesn't have a bill. He, he has sent a letter to the universities across the state, state universities, saying, I want you to document for me what you're doing in terms of teaching anti-racism, social justice in your classrooms. And then I also want to know what sort of efforts you're making from a budgetary standpoint in terms of increase, increasing institutional diversity, equity, uh, inclusion, advocacy, 
and activism. So he's going beyond the classroom and, and saying, who are you hiring? How much money are you paying them? Um, and, and what are we, are we going to take from all that? All right. So his effort, one of the things I thought was fascinating about his effort is that one of the authors he cites in uh, wanting to know what's being taught in classrooms is a colleague of Andre Gillespie's, Carol Anderson, one of the most highly respected writers on anti-racism in the country. Uh, Knight apparently uh, is uh, concerned about her books being taught in uh, universities across the state. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and this letter went out to every uh, university, every provost around the state. And um, it comes from a gentleman who is uh, the head of the education subcommittee of the state appropriations committee. And so it's under that guise of we are we want to know how our state tax dollars are being spent in these universities. But it gets into incredibly granular detail asking for over the last five years, have any of your interviews included questions about, anti, quote, anti-racism? And so it's not really about, are you asking about anti-racism? It's are, specifically, does this word come up? Um, does the word anti-racism come up in any literature or um, trainings that you've been using over the last two to five years? So it goes through um, asking just a number of uh, questions about sort of the overall topic of diversity, but it, it also is being done um, uh, asking about specific words, specific questions, specific titles of books um, that would be, um, we can assume would be problematic if the answer came back, yes, and this is what we've been doing. And so it's another way, uh, certainly I think you could expect that to have a chilling effect within universities to say, yikes, we do not want to get this letter again. So let's get rid of all Carol Anderson titles. Let's think about something else that we haven't been asked for yeah, yet. So in that way, it's sort of a soft power approach instead of writing a bill. It's just going straight to the heart, straight to the classroom, literally, and saying, just tell me more about what you're doing and tell me why. And I'm going to tell you if I'm going to be funding that in the future. Yeah. And, and speaking of the word chilling, Andra, to have somebody as close to you at, the, at, at Emory University, Carol Anderson, uh, cited uh, must be uh, personally chilling to you. Um, no, it's not personally chilling. And I've known Carol for almost 15 years and she will not be cowed by this. Um, <laughs> Carol is somebody who I count as a friend. Um, you know, in COVID, we don't see people all the time, but I've actually gotten to see Carol twice this week alone. Um, I remember when she got hired, she beat Manning Marable for that job. So Manning Marable, who posthumously won a Pulitzer Prize for an epic book on Malcolm X, that was just fascinating and used the old COINTEL profiles sort of as his archival basis. Carol's work, her, distinguish, her, her distinguishing characteristics as a scholar, before she wrote write, White Rage, which is what is probably irritating him, was as a scholar of race and diplomatic history. There aren't many people sort of who study African-American history who are looking at it through a diplomatic and foreign policy lens. Carol is brilliant. And not only is she brilliant, she's a dedicated teacher. So her classes on civil rights history and her classes on war and genocide have routinely maxed out here at Emory. She's one of the best and the brightest. She's a member of the Acad American Academy of Arts and Sciences. This is somebody who you want to be taught in a classroom and, you know, people always argue about why professors need to have tenure and why we need to preserve this. This is exactly why, because professors need to be able to research and write the things that they want to write and to follow the truth where it leads them and to say things that are difficult without interference, whether we're talking about internal campus politics or external political politics. Um, and we also, and our responsibility of training adults. So I'm particularly thinking about undergraduate and graduate students we are doing them a disservice if we don't expose them to uncomfortable information and uncomfortable truths. They've got to grapple with it, and particularly for graduate students, right? If you say you can't teach Carol Anderson or Ibram Kendi and stamp from the beginning is a great sort of political theory kind of overview, I think, of sort of what African-American uh, thought has looked like over time when we are actually making our students less competitive on the job market when they have their PhDs and want to go teach or want to go into industry. Yeah, uh, so me, I just think that this is really terrible. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Let me point out, David Knight asked to know uh, about books by Ibram Kendi, too, who uh, wrote one of the uh, most uh, uh, well-received books on anti-racism back in, in the aftermath of the 
George Floyd uh, murder. Um, Renee, if you don't mind, because we do have so many topics, I- I'd like to get you started on a different topic uh, in the show today. Um, and that uh, has to do with the Buckhead City movement. Um, yesterday, uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, who's not running for re-election, but nevertheless uh, is, is never, is, holds an important and, and uh, uh, powerful position as president of the Georgia State Senate, came out in an interview with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and said he unequivocally opposes a city of Buckhead, um, making <clears throat> a definitive statement that so far we have not heard from uh, either Speaker Ralston or Governor Kemp, who have uh, uh, just not uh, weighed in on it at all. And um, it's an important uh, uh, announcement. Uh, this movement... Uh, appears to be, for a number of reasons, starting to have some very significant pushback. Yes? Undoubtedly. I, you know, with, with, uh, with Jeff Duncan coming out against cityhood, it, it does seem like uh, the mayor's charm offensive is working. Uh, Duncan says they're in a pause mode and, and, and wants to give his new tax bill and the mayor's anti-crime measures time to work their way through. Uh, this makes cityhood for Buckhead much less likely to pass, obviously. And, uh, well, I don't, I, 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 it just doesn't look good for Buckhead City, does it? And, and, of course, it just really makes you think about how this started, right? And the, the folks that are leading the charge for Buckhead cityhood and what, what that actually means for Atlanta, the changing nature of the demographics of the state of, of Georgia – and, and of course, the the leader of, of Buckhead City, which is uh, Bill White, who, you know, is uh, one of these fast talking New Yorkers who come come comes around um, and seems to convince everybody that this is the right way that America should be be run. And you know, his bombastic tone just is not exactly what. Uh, Georgia's future uh, and the future of of its success really should be embedded with. So it's 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 just not looking good at all. So I, I think you're going to see a you know resounding applause from the Atlanta public school system, um, and it's going to be a rip, ripple effect th- throughout the city. Uh, Patricia, um, certainly you're welcome to add to the the uh, statement itself. But the other aspect of this that I think is pretty interesting, and, and you, you'll have to tell me whether it has much chance to pass or not, is what Duncan said during his conversation, I think it was with Greg Bluestein, if I'm not wrong, um, is he thinks a much better way to address crime in Buckhead and other communities around the state is his proposal for a, um, a tax credit for up to $5,000 for uh, individuals or organizations, businesses that contribute to local law enforcement. There are specific purposes that uh, need to, uh, the money needs to be applied for, hiring, retaining officers and the like. Um, and that proposal is really a different approach and uh, an interesting one uh, compared to severing a, uh, the whole uh, area away from the city. To weigh in on all this for us. Yeah, I think that proposal has a really great chance of passing. It's the type of thing that is very um, Republican friendly. It empowers individuals to give money to support the police on top of public funding. Um, And it does find a new avenue for funding for law enforcement. And so that's not anything that I think many people um, in the legislature are really going to be against. Um, It does raise questions about whether there are wealthier communities that can give more to their own police departments, but that's, you know, really a part of the debate that I'm sure we'll have. Um, But I do think that the Buckhead Cityhood movement has had um, just a really bad week. Um, The biggest problem, I would say, um, has been Bill White, and who is the CEO of the Buckhead Cityhood movement. Um, There was a a choice he made this week. He um, really posited um, basically a conspiracy theory linking MARTA funding um, and some, what he said, we're missing MARTA funds that are not missing MARTA funds, but said that maybe that's connected to the death of the MARTA CEO who committed suicide uh, in January. Um, The former MARTA, MARTA CEO was really a a dear personal friend of many, many people in the legislature, including some of Buckhead City's biggest boosters. And so um, White has been very um, aggressive on social media. He has uh, uh, 
worked to attack people who are against Buckhead City. He's uh, put people's names and addresses out. Uh, it's been it's been very very controversial. But just the choice to to attack um, Jeffrey Parker, I think, felt like a bridge too far for a number of lawmakers who then said, what is this movement all about if this is the person leading it? And so um, it's not completely over. Uh, Jeff Duncan was against SB 202, and that sure did pass. Um, But between the two events, I think it's it's very problematic for the effort. All right. uh, Let's do this. Uh, Let's get our first break of the show out of the way right now, because we have so much more to talk about with this panel. uh, And we'll do that after these messages. By the way, if you're wondering how an organization and a venue that is about as uncontroversial as possible, the National Butterfly Center, could be caught up in a conspiracy theory shared by many, many people out there that, in fact, it is involved in smuggling undocumented children across the border because it's down in southern Texas uh, to get them involved in child sex trafficking rings, uh, you should read the new Political Rewind newsletter, which you can subscribe to right now by going to gpb.org slash uh, newsletters. That's just one of the items we've got in the newsletter this week. It's crazy, uh, um, but it hasn't gotten as much attention as I thought it might deserve. We also have in that newsletter, of course, lots of headlines about the important political stories in Georgia right now. So gpb.org slash newsletters. We'd love to have you become a subscriber. All right. Renee Alegria, Andre Gillespie, Patricia Murphy with us on today's show. Hey, Patricia, let's do some election uh, news. The, uh, the Republican Governors Association uh, uh, really took what is an unprecedented step for them. They weighed in on the race between David Perdue and Brian Kemp for governor. Uh, typically, we know that an organization like RGA is not going to get involved in a primary contest between two Republicans. But earlier, the, the RGA did say they will support incumbent in races across the country. And now they've done it. They've put some half a million dollars into an ad supporting Brian Kemp. Interesting move. Yeah, it's really interesting when you think about the politics behind the scenes of this. Um, Obviously, uh, former governor uh, Sonny Perdue has a number of uh, close associates who used to be with the RGA. Um, The RGA uh, has a lot of close uh, former staff members who are now with David Perdue at the RGA is coming out in favor of Brian Kemp over David Perdue. Um, It's really important because it comes with half a million dollars and there's more where that came from. Um, It also is uh, a vote of confidence in this primary um, for Kemp against Perdue. That's just very welcome. It talks a lot about his his effectiveness as a governor um, and making the case that there's no reason to change governors right now because you have a perfectly wonderful governor in the opinion of Republican governors. And so that's something that um, is welcome news for the Kemp campaign and really quite relevant behind the scenes as well. Um, Renee, I keep saying that on the surface among leadership and and, and other uh, parts of the Republican Party, there does seem to be a lot of momentum moving in Brian Kemp's direction, the amount of money he's raised compared to David Perdue. David Perdue raised less than a million dollars in the last fundraising period. So on the surface, there seems to be a lot of momentum moving toward Kemp. What we don't know is what those hardcore Trump uh, people out there, the base, is thinking about this election. And as long as Donald Trump is attacking Brian Kemp, the question is, what's more important, that base or those uh, leadership gifts and the money going to Brian Kemp? Yeah, we're, we're witnessing a civil war within the Republican Party like the party has never seen before. The extreme right wing has been frighteningly successful at taking over the Republican Party. But of course, there are many in the GOP, just staunch conservatives that are a little worried about taking things too far. I, I, I think that we're at a make or break moment in our democracy uh, and we'll, we'll see what happens in the next few years, uh, certainly the midterms, uh, but then the 24 presidential election as well. Um, I mean, at this point, the, the, the majority uh, of these right wing uh, folks are Trump cultists. But, you know, a few 
hold on to some of the vestiges of the traditional conservatism, which I think Kemp really embodies. I mean, his record is 100% in line with uh, traditional conservatism. I, I saw this uh, Mitt Romney tweet this this week um, where he quoted, quote, uh, something to the effect of shame falls on a party that would censure persons of conscience. And this is uh, the censure of, of Cheney. Um, and it, it really makes you think, what is going on back there, you know, in behind closed doors uh, and how all of this, uh, you know, really begins to build up uh, in the GOP's battle with with the well-funded Abrams machine when, when it comes to uh, all things Georgia or Warnock. Uh, so we're in for some incredibly exciting times, uh, depending on which side of the GOP you're on, not even Democrat GOP. It's, 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 it's not going to be pretty. Andro, how do you look at uh, what's happening right now? What's going on between Kemp and Purdue? What are the dynamics of that race right now? Um, you know, and we've been talking about this since uh, Donald Trump, you know, started to openly criticize uh, Brian Kemp and treat him as persona non grata. Um, just because Donald Trump doesn't like you doesn't mean that Republican lawmakers, including people like Governor Kemp, don't have their own base of support. Uh, they were around before Trump came on the scene, and some of them are going to be around after he's gone. Um, and so I think we're starting to see the manifestation and evidence of this that, yeah, Kemp would have liked that Trump endorsement, but he doesn't necessarily need it in order to be able to win the Republican nomination. We'll have to see ultimately if that comes to fruition, but I think this speaks to a larger collective action problem. While I think we're going to be dealing with the ideology of Trumpism for a long period of time, I think we have played too much stock and actually overestimated the importance of a Trump endorsement. And in particular, for those who stand in opposition to Donald Trump, right, there's this collective action problem that people have been afraid to realize that if they banded together, Trump might inflict some casualties on them, but he can't take everybody out. I think that's always been the case, and I think Republicans have been afraid to do it. But I think we're starting to see some signs that there are some people who might be willing to stand up to them. And I can't predict that they're all going to like survive politically in this uh, particular election cycle year, but I think some of them will. And I think that that's going to be a really important lesson to, to, to the Republican Party, to the Trump wing in particular. Um, thank you. Patricia, in other election news, you know, there have been lots of reports about uh, Herschel Walker's mental health problems. They, uh, we started learning about them long before he became a, a candidate for uh, the United States Senate. Um, uh, but there's also been reporting about violence against women, particularly his former wife. But now the Associated Press has added more detail uh, to uh, uh, incidents that Walker was involved with. Um, in 2001, AP reports, uh, the police in Irving, Texas, where Walker lived with his wife and children, were called to his home. Walker was inside the house brandishing a gun. AP reports that his wife at the time and children were very frightened by his uh, behavior, which seemed out of control. And uh, AP also reports that he said, as he was inside the house, that he was preparing for a shootout with the police. Um, that is kind of uh, the kind of detail that really, really, I think, has the potential to drive home how significant some of these mental health issues have been. But the question is, does the base pay attention to those things? Well, the base has not had a whole lot to pay attention to, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, Herschel Walker does not speak to the uh, AJC so far. We've not been able to do an interview with him. Um, also, uh, the AP spent a lot of time reporting in Texas. Uh, because Walker has not been in Georgia for the last 30 years, um, there's not a lot of evidence about his um, about his own personal life and his personal really struggles that he had as an adult. And, that, and the, all of that... Those, those details really are in Texas. So the AP has been able to report that out and it paints a portrait of just a very turbulent, troubled situation. Um, there was a police standoff outside of his mm -hmm. house. Um, the AP uh, got information about a Dallas Cowboys cheerleader 
who went to police and said she was very scared and worried about um, Herschel Walker. A lot of this did not lead to an arrest. Um, that might have been because he uh, was seeking help. It might have been because he was famous. You know, we don't really know why um, none of this led to um, actual action by law enforcement, but it creates um, a much broader more detailed um, situation with a number of more violent incidents than we knew about. Um, and it also talks about uh, the doctor who um, diagnosed Walker with dissociative identity disorder. And um, that doctor, I wouldn't exactly call it a traditional background. Um, he has, a, uh, has done a, quite a bit of writing about the occult, about people being possessed by spirits. Um, and that really is the, the clinical diagnosis that we've been relying on to understand that he has dissociative personality disorder. And so it raises a lot of questions. And so um, Donald Trump does not vet his candidates. You know, it's like, are you my friend? You've got my endorsement. And this raises a, another situation and Trump's had it uh, with other candidates who without detailed background, um, he seems like a great candidate. And the more voters learn about Walker, they may be troubled about that. We'll have to see what voters do with this. Um, yeah, by the way, that same, uh, I think it's a psychiatrist, uh, was also a big believer in gay conversion therapies, which he practices well. So he, he had sort of a marginal, a career out there on the margins of psychotherapy. Um, Andra, so the traditional thinking about a candidate in a primary contest is that a hotly contested primary can be good for the candidate who emerges because often what happens is issues that might be troubling to that candidate can be vetted in the primary, the candidate can respond to them, and voters can see it at the time it's unfolding in the primary. By the time the general election comes around, the candidate can say, well, we already talked about that, voters have already acted, and it doesn't give the opposite party quite as much ammunition to work with. Is that true in a race like this? where despite the fact you've got three other people running for Senate, they're not getting attention in terms of the way they're reacting to these problems of Herschel Walker. So I'm not sure that these problems are necessarily going to get the airtime or going to resonate amongst Republican voters in a way that could defeat his candidacy. And um, I think that Senator Warnock has lots of options in terms of how to go on the attack in the general election without necessarily sort of picking on Walker's mental health. One of the reasons why I'm not quite sure that this is necessarily going to resonate in the same way is because of the age of the story. So the stories that were being discussed happened between 2001 and 2005. So I think a lot of people are going to be like, that happened 20 years ago. So um, barring Herschel Walker having a public episode now where people can see it in real time, I, you know, I'm, I, I think that people will have supporters of him will find a way to rationalize that support and to discount the troubling stories that they're hearing. I'm not even sure that sort of hearing about sort of the background of his therapist is necessarily going to matter. And I have to admit, I read the qualifications and the background um, differently. So in terms of, you know, his approaches to therapy and the types of things that he sought to treat, yeah, I saw that. But they kept on saying, I mean, what piqued my attention in, in, in the article was he has a PhD in philosophy. So I went on Christian uh, television websites where, you know, he often appears, and they suggested that he had a degree in counseling with a minor in psychology which does seem to oh, kind of fit what oh, Texas okay. looks like in terms of its licensing. So I was just like, where did that come from? Because, yeah, I wouldn't go to a philosopher for therapy <laughs> or anything, or, much less when I go to a political <laughs> scientist because we're not qualified for that. Uh, thank but, you. yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the, the thing that's, you know, interesting is, you know, when he's talking about demon possession and I've spent a lot of time watching Christian television with Christian psychologists, who, you know, not psychiatrists, but psychologists, maybe sometimes psychiatrists who will tell you when you know it's mental illness versus demon possession, drawing pictures on the brain and discerning a possession through colors um, is never something that like I've heard before, <laughs> nor does it make any sense. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that there are lots of things that are, you know, really troubling, but I think the people who are troubled are people who are probably yeah. disinclined to vote for him anyway. Yeah. Renee, jump in. Yeah. I mean, listen to what we're talking about. Do, does it demon possession and whatnot? Doesn't it feel like, uh, Trump in his endorsements is really just casting for a reality show. I, you know, I mean, if you had Herschel Walker, Vernon Jones and Taylor Green on Fear Factor, it would make for some great TV viewing, right? And that's how he seems to be making decisions on who he's going to endorse. Uh, 
that doesn't mean that candidates like Herschel Walker will withstand the scrutiny that is going to come with everything the election will, will, will shape up to be. Uh, we will all find out so much more as we as as November approaches and and we'll see how he's going to, you know, dodge and weave and juke his way to the uh, to the uh, field goal to the to the one yard line. Well, well, before we get to our final break of the show, uh, Patricia, to put a cap on this part of the conversation, we should point out that uh, in the latest fundraising uh, period, the last three months, Raphael Warnock uh, really far outraised uh, the presumptive nominee, Herschel Walker. We'll see if he is or not. I think what I, I was fumbling around for the figures a minute ago, but I think I think Warnock is nine point six million dollars. I think Walker certainly did well at five million. But Raphael Warnock is proving himself to continue to be a power, powerful uh, fundraiser. Yeah, Warnock has raised more than $20 million for his uh, re-election campaign. It's just an astronomical figure. He's raised more than any other candidate um, up for re-election, any other Senate candidate up for re-election this year. So he really is sort of in a stratosphere by himself right now. Um, Herschel Walker has also raised an enormous amount of money for a GOP primary. Um, and so something that's interesting about these numbers is that there had long been a narrative that uh, candidates of color could not raise money, mm. that um, it was uh, not something they just were not able to do, could not tap those resources. And these two candidates have really just clobbered that narrative and put it to bed. It's simply not a factor. These are candidates that people are getting behind and supporting with huge dollars. For Warnock in particular, he doesn't have to spend any money right now either because he's got this GOP primary playing itself out. So he's going to be able to hold on to that. Uh, he's already spending money, though, on Atlanta TV, very positive bio ads and telling Georgians, um, I see you, I hear you, I am you. And so he's got the space and money to do that in February in an expensive market, which is really remarkable. Yeah, he's in a very luxurious position, as you point out, to be able to run positive ads. You know, the best scenario, as we all know, who follow politics for a candidate is to define yourself uh, before the opposition defines you. And Walker's in, I mean, uh, Warnock is essentially in that position right now. He knows the onslaught is coming, uh, but if he can uh, uh, t talk about himself in the most positive terms possible, uh, he's got the freedom to do that right now. And that is certainly helpful for his candidacy. Let's get to our final break of the show. We'll be back with more in a minute. Welcome back to Political, Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and of course, I'm happy that you're with us for our show today. Uh, let's do one more election story before we move on. Um, let me start with you on this one, Renee, if I might. Uh, so we now know that Vernon Jones, uh, who was running for uh, the Republican nomination for governor, uh, has dropped out of that race uh, because he recognized, apparently, uh, that he had more bargaining power with Donald Trump, who supports David Perdue, if he got out of that race, uh, where he could have caused a, a, a possible runoff between Perdue and Kemp, uh, and got into another race where he wanted to, where he thought he could get Trump's support, which he's gotten now. He's entered the 10th congressional district uh, Republican primary. It's a crowded primary already. Um, it's a rural Georgia district in many ways. And um, here's this African-American who's been a Democrat for decades, becomes a, a Trump ally after 2016. And it's going to be fascinating to watch whether or not he can connect with those voters in the 10th and whether Trump's endorsement of him will have an impact in that race. Yeah, uh, Jones seems to be, uh, you know, one of those political shapeshifters, right? Like Ronnie Jackson or, or Lindsey Graham of late, uh, who will enthusiastically go all in on Trump uh, if he thinks it will get him a lot of attention, a lot of money, and a pathway to what uh, they may think is an elected position. Uh, you know, Jones is very controversial. Uh, you know, he, as, you, as you said, he was a, a Democrat and he horrified the Democrats uh, by backing Trump in 2020. And he, he's got a, a, a pretty questionable 
uh, record, you know, um, he's been accused of sexual assault, uh, corruption. Uh, a lot of folks just think he's a political opportunist and a grandstander. He does have his fans, of course, but uh, that's what a lot of folks do think of himself. And, he, you know, he, he says that he'll uh, he'll impeach Biden and Harris on day one. So he's he's kind of on that Taylor Green path. Right. Which uh, we've seen uh, be very alienating. Uh, for her, but also for the constituents of, of Georgia. You know, how do these controversial uh, candidates really impact the voters who they represent? And they do. Um, so, I, you know, it, it, it's going to be interesting to see what what Trump's uh, endorsement does. As you as you stated, he is a black candidate in a, a very, very rural, <clears throat> rural white area of Georgia. Um, is he going to resonate? Will his pivot to running for this seat work? Uh, I would say he's got a really, really tall North Georgia mountain to climb here. Uh, uh, Patricia and then Andra, I'd love to hear each of you weigh in on this. Well, it's true that he's a black candidate, but he is calling himself the black Donald Trump. <laughs> and um, Trump voters really don't care if you used to be a Democrat because Donald Trump used to be a Democrat. And um, uh, the challenge I see here for Jones is that he's not well known in that district. Certainly his endorsement for Trump will um, rocket him to some people's attention. Um, when I would go to Trump rallies. Vernon Jones was the second loudest applause line at rallies of 10,000, 20,000 people. And the first was Donald Trump. So he was the second most famous person at every rally I covered. So he has a huge following among Trump supporters. Um, also in that race, though, are Mike Collins, a well-known trucking executive whose dad was in Congress. Patrick Witt, who is a member of the Trump legal team even though he's not a member of the bar. That's another conversation. And <laughs> Timothy Barr, um, a member of the state uh, state legislature, all of them are running for that Trump lane. All of them want that Trump endorsement. Uh, Vernon Jones has got it, but nobody in the 10th knows who he is. So we're going to have to really wait and see here how this plays out for him. It, he, he couldn't stay in that governor's race. And so this, I think, is the next best thing, in his opinion, to have a chance. And Listen, it, it, there's, an, there's a not small chance that he could get to Congress and sit next to Marjorie Taylor Greene at all of her not committee hearings. Oh, Andre? <laughs> you know, you know uh, 15, 16 years ago, we would have talked about the difficulty of black Republican candidates actually winning over support of, of, of white voters, white Republican voters in their district. So in particular, in my first book, an edited volume, uh, my colleague Tyson King Meadows wrote about Michael Steele and how he mm -hmm. underperformed in the whiter, more Republican parts of Maryland when he ran for the Senate in 2006. That doesn't seem to be the case today. And so I can't necessarily say that because he's black, he's at a disadvantage. Um, Vernon Jones may be at a disadvantage because he's clearly carpetbagging, even though there are stories about how many members of Congress used to live in a certain neighborhood here in Atlanta um, and, 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 and other kinds of things. Um, I think he's going to try to sort of uh, blunt the attacks on him being a carpetbagger by him going back to his rural roots. So he did grow up on a farm, so he can talk agriculture. He can talk rural um, values. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think what he's hoping for is to make it to second place in a wide field so that he can make it to a runoff election on the basis of that Trump endorsement. But I think this is one of the marquee sort of case studies of what uh, the value of a Trump endorsement is going to be like in 2022. I think that he does have some headwinds. And so the Trump endorsement might give him some notice, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to offset the long-standing relationships that some of the other candidates have with this district who are more familiar with it. It's going to be a fascinating race to watch unfold. All right, Marjorie Taylor Greene's name has come up several times already on this show today. I, I have to acknowledge, and I sent in a note to all of you uh, that went out yesterday about the topics I'd hope we'd discuss today, I said I wasn't sure what to do about Marjorie Taylor Greene's uh, calling the uh, Capitol Police gazpacho police. Uh, meaning, of course, <laughs> Gestapo police. It's gotten a lot of play in the media, especially among those who uh, uh, want to have a laugh at her expense. But I wasn't quite sure what to do with this story, Patricia, because of all the egregious, outrageous, truly offensive things that Marjorie Taylor Greene has said, uh, this seems like a silly distraction, and yet it's just a measure 
of how much people who don't like her want to not like her that this becomes a bigger deal. Yes. <laughs> you know, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to part with you on this one. Bill. Okay. I think it's important. I think it's important. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene is going back to comparing the Holocaust to anything um, that she's not happy about and and equating her own experience as somebody who's being persecuted by some sort of Nazi-esque regime. That is totally inappropriate. Oh. And she promised to stop doing that seven months ago. Um, and so she is um, anti-fact, anti-science, anti-history. She has a huge following. She's one of the biggest fundraisers in Congress. Kevin McCarthy asks her opinion on things. So she is an important player. And I think um, for, and I have been one of the people to say, I don't want to pay attention to that. That's ridiculous, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Your latest nutball um, comment makes no sense to me. This to me struck a chord because um, it doesn't matter that she says these things. People want, people appreciate her saying that. People who support her like her. This is part of what they like about her. And it's part of, a refusal among uh, some leaders and now many voters to to acknowledge facts, science, history, reality, um, and it's dangerous, in my opinion. And so I actually have a column about it today, Bill. Oh, we'll <laughs> and so I wrote it. about it for Sunday. I, I got to tell um, you, I take this on. I, I have to tell you, I think you have called me out appropriately. I think that and it's not, not you, Bill. No, it's no, the world. I, no. I think that not recognizing what this is really about is not misnaming the Gestapo. It's the fact that once again she evoked the Holocaust in a totally inappropriate. And I thank you for uh, for putting it in that perspective. I look forward to reading your column, uh, Renee and and, and uh, Andre. We're almost out of time, but a quick comment from each of you on that, just like 20, 30 just seconds. Uh, yeah, bringing it back to to book banning, um, the the queen of Twitter clapbacks, uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez tweeted something uh, that I found rather amusing. It was something to the effect of clearly uh, banned uh, that Taylor Green clearly banned all books from her house years ago, <laughs> right. uh, which I found amusing. Um, and sadly, though, and, and I agree with with the panel here, there, it, you know, there are incredibly serious tones here as funny as, you know, gazpacho police is and will be a joke on Saturday Night Live. I'm sure right. this this Saturday, it is indicative of the John Kennedy's uh, Madison Cawthorns, you know, who wear their ignorance I, as I, a badge of honor. Andrew, you got about 10 seconds to add something. <laughs> One, it fits into a trope of ignorant Southerners that I actually kind of bristle at. And then I think the final thing is the idea of if we elect somebody to Congress, they should be prepared and be doing their homework. And by doing this over and over and over again, she's actually demeaning the office she holds. All right. We are completely out of time for today's show. Uh, Andre Gillespie, Renee Alegria. And Patricia Murphy, thank you for a fascinating uh, conversation. I hope you all out there have a terrific weekend. Of course, we're back with a new show on Monday. In the meantime, take care. Stay healthy. CDC says you should still wear a mask. I'm going with them. Go out there and get a booster. See you all next week.